name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Whoa. I'm like quasi-hyper right now, so um, hopefully I don't start talking really quickly. Um, beg your pardon. Um, <clears throat> before, before I get into lecture number four, um, I feel like the constant needs to, like, to, to clarify. I've been getting some follow-up questions that are actually really good, so I do want to clarify a couple of things. When I'm speaking, I'm speaking obviously broadly, right, in these things. Like I'm speaking as general concepts. And so um, I'm not trying to speak dog dogmatically or emphatically about the micro level. I'm speaking about the macro level, right? So, for example, we had a really good discussion afterwards when I was saying how if someone, for example, isn't suited to teach, um, right, then that shouldn't be their thing, right? But I'm, I'm not negating that if somebody is compelled to teach and has a spirit of humility that God can't work through that person, right? So I'm talking about what we do for, as, from a systemic point of view of how do we set up the service versus what is an exception on an individual level um, based on the needs of the community or based on what somebody's being instructed to do. So, I mean, that's an example. So if I say anything that sounds like, like uh, off-putting a little bit, by all means, like, um, just shout, um, or, or raise your hand, um, but either, either one of them will, um, will work. Okay, so, um, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of things in my head right now. Um, lecture four, for lack of a better name for it, I've called abandonment. Um, abandonment of the self and abandonment to God, to something positive, to, to, to the concept of love. So, so far we talked about how the aim was to live according to design, right? Then we said that sin hindered us from fulfilling um, that design. And then we talked about how failure to kill the old man has led to all sorts of dangers, right? So then, what do I do? Um, and the answer is to lose myself, because we're talking about how the problem is myself, right? So the, the solution is to abandon myself to something else, and that something else is, is love, which is, which is God. Um, which is why the verse that he uses is, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, just abandons his life, for my sake and the gospel's, right? So this is for whom we're doing it, we'll save it. Now how can we lose ourselves and seek our own destruction unless we truly hate ourselves? And how do we hate ourselves? It's, Sorry, I'm just trying to picture someone who has no idea we're talking about hearing us being like, how do you hate yourself? Because it sounds so anti-everything. Um, but like we said earlier, hate here, we're talking about self-denial, right? Of not choosing myself. We're not talking about low self-esteem. We're not talking about self-loathing. Those are like self-loathing is a sin, right? It's not, it's not right. Um, so when I say self-hatred here, that is what we're what we're talking about. So number one is, how do we do this? Number one is your need for the Bible. And it's funny, like, whenever we give any question and then you have the Sunday school answer, fast and pray and read the Bible. And then you, like, look around, and, and or even at yourself, you don't need to look around. I'm not going to encourage everyone to judge everyone. Um, but look at yourself and ask, do I actually ever read the Bible? Um, do I actually pray? And do I do these things consistently? Um, because if, if I don't, good, good luck to me. Um, so he says, 
How do we discover our real self and be sure it is this dangerous enemy? We can only do so through the word of the Bible with its revealing power read in the light of the Holy Spirit. The greatest and most precious spiritual inheritance left to us by Christ is his word because this is his spirit. It is a spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, said Jesus, John 6, 63. The spirit of God is in his word, discerning everything, revealing all things, even the depth of conscience. Okay? And this is a good place to stop and talk very briefly about light and truth. I feel badly for my congregation because it's all I talk about in half my sermons. Um, it gets redundant, but it's because it's true. Okay? Is that... What light does is expose anything that's dark, right? That's, that's what it does. There is no way to have light and darkness mixing. It's not a racist thing, okay? It's not a, 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 an egotistical thing. By nature, they cannot coexist. So wherever there's darkness, if you put light on it, everything is exposed. This is the same about truth. This is why Christ refers to himself as both light and as well as truth, right? Is that where truth shines, every lie is exposed, Right? There is no longer any room for hiding because the truth is there. Right? Anybody can claim whatever they want, but if, if something is, if the truth is just right there, there's nothing you can do. If someone like, tells their kid, I don't know, like, there's no such thing as gravity, it's like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, there's gravity. Right? Like, there's, there's not even an explanation needed, it's just there. Right? And so, this is why we need um, the Bible. The word of the Bible pierces man by the Holy Spirit, revealing the thoughts of his heart and his desires, his intentions, and their depths. It is like a sharp double-edged sword that strongly penetrates the body through and through, for no flesh or bones can deter its aim. So the Bible acts as this light, the Bible acts as this truth, because it tells us what we are doing that is wrong, right? And it will tell us about our behaviors. Like when you sit there and be like, I don't know, I can't put up with this guy, I can't forgive him. And then you read Christ saying, no, like 70 times 7 is still not enough, right? Then you're, you're, you're getting an answer to the, your behavior that you thought was wrong, right? When you're thinking, I can't tolerate this person, they asked me to go for a walk, and then Christ said, go, go for two miles instead of one, right? Then there's something there. When you think that you're justified to take something, and he says, no, even if he asked to borrow it, let him have it, right? You're getting an instruction that will pierce you for what your intentions and what your desires were. I mean, those are, those are some examples, but there's examples on, on every level. And it's the Bible that captures the Holy Spirit's words because it's the consistent word of God um, for hundreds of years. And it exposes me to myself by hearing what the Lord actually said and says. This is why we read the Bible, right? When people... Um, discredit the Bible from within the church. I don't care about outside the church, but from within the church, right? When, when you hear someone saying, oh, but that was like this many hundred years ago. I'm like, that's correct, right? Like, I'm, I'm not sure what the argument is, right? Where like, God doesn't change, right? So he wasn't giving a cultural suggestion, right? If we believe that we're in the image and likeness of God, then who he is is who we're supposed to be, right? So it isn't about him arbitrarily drawing up random rules for all of us. It's saying, this is who I am, and that's who you're supposed to be. And that's why the words are compelling. It's not for any other reason. In doing this and finding out what or who really is God, right, then you start to find out what, was, what really 
what was really God and what was really you, right? So if you haven't had the Bible in your, in your life, and you've been operating under the assumption that what you're doing is right, under the assumption that the Bible says this somewhere, right? Many of us are very good at finding a verse to justify whatever it is we're saying, right? That we heard randomly somewhere. Um, I think actually like 90% of Egyptian thinks that there's a verse in the Bible that says, when I forgive, I forget. Um, because of that one picture that's in everybody's home. Um, there is no such verse. Um, but we have these ideas in our, in our head that we pawn off as our own, right? And then, and then call it a backup, right? Of being like, no, no, no I'm sure that was, that was there somewhere. But as we read the Bible, we find out what was really the Bible, what was really the Word of God, what was really the teaching of the Spirit, and what's really just me, right? Talking a lot, which I do do. Um, and this can be grossly uncomfortable. Um, keyword of the retreat. At some point, the Holy Spirit, through the Word, may reveal one of the spiritual works that we rely on, okay? Um, or rejoice in and pride ourselves on thinking it to be a work of grace. So maybe I'll find out as I'm reading that there's something that I'm doing um, that I thought was God because I attributed it to God because I like it. And if it was good, then it must be God. But it, suddenly the Spirit tells our conscience that that work actually does not belong to Him, to God. And that it is of our own imagination. The Spirit shows us it is man's pride and ambition that nurtures this idea and nothing is due to grace. Now the work of self thus falls into disgrace and is divorced from the work of the Spirit. Man's thoughts and intentions begin to be abundantly revealed. Like, let's say, I don't know, like, let's say some dude started a project at church that he thought was the most brilliant thing on the planet, and because he loved it and because it was his idea, he felt it was definitely divinely inspired, because it's my idea. Um, and then, right, is so into it, and then as he's reading the Bible, something that he reads fills him with compunction and makes him realize, no, this is not something that I would have done, right? Maybe I'm reading a story and find out that, like, and I happen, the story that I'm reading, right, will be something that says, you're wrong, I don't do this, right? I'll, I'll give a, a, a personal example where it wasn't the Bible, it was the paradise, but God does speak through what we read, right? I had a night when, near the beginning of my time as a novice where I was like, no, 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 I need to get out of here. This is not the place, and there's no elder here. Obviously, I have to go. No elder, no life, peace out. And that was a justified answer, right? And a good monastic answer. If anybody asked me, it, wouldn't, it would be compelling, right? Like, there was no elder. Um, and so I sat down to read. I opened, I did my Bible reading, and then I opened <laughs> my Paradise of the Spirit. And then the first way I read it happened one time that a young man who had chosen for himself the life of monasticism um, said to himself, I must leave, for there is no Abba. Um, <laughs> he was wrong. Um, but, so God will do these things, right? And it's because he loves us, right? It's because he wants us to do what is right. And so you might find out as you're reading the Bible that what you thought was brilliant and spiritual and deep isn't. Um, and you should be happy to find that out, not unhappy. It's kind of like finding out there's no Santa, Okay, so for years, <laughs> you thought, <laughs> my bad, um, my, my nephew didn't believe there was a Santa because of my brother, and then he went to school and, and, and thinks that his dad is wrong, that there is a Santa. Um, for years, you thought that Santa was coming down the chimney, eating your food, 
right? You thought the noise was reindeer and the gifts were placed, etc. And then one day you find it was your parents. It's crushing, right? <laughs> the only difference here is that it wasn't Santa who was you, okay? Is that this, this work that you thought was, was, was God's was yours, right? It was, it was you building up. It was you giving it all this pizzazz and all of these things, and it, and it wasn't God, and it wasn't Santa. Um, but as we discussed, you thought you were God, right? The worship of the self. So you attributed your work to God because you simply assumed yourself to be right or true. But this is good, right? Because, to quote from Unimata, what has happened here? By means of the written word of God, the Holy Spirit has been able to penetrate through the envelope of self that is so false and dim. So here we're seeing finally some progress, right? We're seeing some penetration through the self. He penetrates to the inner soul and awakens the conscience that has been numbed by self, by me, with all its lies and deception. The Holy Spirit then infuses into the conscience godly wisdom and insight so that one may discern what is right and what is wrong. At once the spiritual man's eyes look upon the attitude, work, and words that self has claimed to be from God. He can now tell that these actions were false and counterfeit and that its origins and goals were wrong, filthy, and sinful. Right? Which is, this is good. Right? Is that finally there has become, a, like a light has turned on. Right? Like we are talking about, that's exposing a little bit of what was going on in my room. Of like, oh, I didn't realize that that was me. I thought it was, like, I thought it was God, but it wasn't. There's no reason to be upset by that, right? That's not uh, a horrible thing. It's good because it means your conscience is coming alive, right? This is actually what we want. Um, and you're beginning to know yourself. This is the beginning of humility, right? Is that now I'm starting to find out who I am. So yes, at the beginning it's uncomfortable, right? But it becomes um, more comfortable. You start to learn right from wrong instead of the assumption of your rightness, right? Which means that you're starting to learn the truth. The beginning of truth lets you start to be freed, right? Imagine if you refrained from doing something or did that thing your whole life because you're afraid of a particular consequence that you were told about, and then you discover that that consequence isn't true, right? So your whole life you weren't doing something because you thought you were going to have some horrible thing happen, and then you find that that horrible thing um, doesn't happen. Right? Whoever, there's like an Egyptian adage, if you pray with with uh, matches at night that you'll, you'll wet yourself. Um, many of us found out that wasn't true. Um, but the result is that, right, you feel liberated, and you'll start to do that thing that you were warned about, because you're like, it was a lie, right? You found out that you can do this thing that everybody's saying that you can't. So truth is liberating, no matter what side it is. The truth is the most liberating thing, because... You, you, you felt a captive to a certain behavior or a certain thing, right? Because you thought it was the truth, because you're worried about this thing being wrong. But when you find out that, like, it isn't, the, blah, blah, blah. when you find out that something is true, then you're, you're freed. It, but what it does is it, it helps you discover a weakness that you have or admitting it, knowing your identity. Whatever, whatever is a lie you are a slave to. I've been using this example more and more. I had a, an encounter with my, with my brother um, two visits ago to Canada. And um, I was telling someone this story earlier. I wanted to get a different cell phone, which many people were happy about, but it's not an iPhone. 
But I, I had this whole big spiel about I'm going to buy this one because then I can get rid of this tablet. But if I get this tablet, and I went on this whole long, like really long-winded thing about why I was buying what I was buying. And so George looked at me and he's like, you always do this. He's like, you give this long spiel, you buy whatever you want in the end. And all the stuff you're saying you're going to get rid of, you don't get rid of. Um, and he goes, so just go and buy it. And don't, <laughs> don't give us the long speech, right? Honestly, when we were kids, that would have annoyed me to death. Um, whereas this time I looked at him and was like, you're right. Um, and I was like, I think the reality is that I feel the need to justify it because I know that I like things. And if I like things, I'm worried you're going to all think that I'm vain. But the truth is, I'm vain. Right? And so, like, I'm sorry, like, I was just, like, joking, you don't need to take it personally. Like, no, 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 it's good. Um, because the truth is liberating. Okay, so then... Maybe there's a truth about me. Maybe I like things and I shouldn't like things, right? So does that mean I can't buy the thing? No, it doesn't. It means that I now should ask deeper questions of why am I getting it? Is the right time? Am I being excessive, right? Then there's a whole new set of questions I don't need to be evasive about, right? Instead of just like giving this long thing and if nobody like challenges the logic that I'm like, okay, good, I can still get it, right? Then it, instead it becomes about the principle itself. The truth is liberating, when you know something to be true, now you know how to deal with it, right? It's like, like not to keep using this example, but knowing what your disease is is sometimes more liberating than not knowing, right? Because at least there's a plan, right? At least there's a knowledge of what my symptoms mean, right? There's some degree of predictability. It just it gives me some kind of, of, of peace to know something, right, about what's going on versus why is this happening, right? And then not knowing what's going to trigger what. Right? It's, there's a, when you know something, right, it makes things a little bit, a little bit more um, able to deal with. Truth is liberating. Um, I'll give another example. Someone isn't attracted to the person he's dating but holds it in. Okay? A person did some mistake in the past. A person is hiding a fact about himself. Whatever it is, you will feel captive to that, always worried about when someone will find it out, that truth that you're hiding. You're that person right, who has that, that thing in the past. The truth, though, is very raw. It makes you vulnerable at first because you're exposed, but then that gives you strength because you're now happy with the very substance um, of that thing, which I'll elaborate on in a second. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. There was no shame in their nudity because it was simply who they were. Right? That's all it was. Right? There was no knowledge. It was, this is who we are. There was not a single thought. Um, knowledge gave new interpretations, and that knowledge meant hiding and shame, right? It was like, I did something I wasn't supposed to, now I need to hide it. That concept of hiding, of covering, came after sin, right? Before that, there was nothing hidden, right? It was, it was, it was all out there in the open. Truth, uh, wrong things bring shame, right things bring peace. Truth, again, I'll repeat a billion times, is liberating. What, whoever does sin is a slave to sin, right? And our, our Lord said this. If you are doing something that you know is wrong, it means that in spite of knowing it's bad for you, it has a grip over you, right? Which means that it's holding you captive in some way. That's the truth. But if you believe in truth, if you love the truth, you will feel compelled to change when you see the lie, right? You won't be okay with with pretending, right? Once you know that something's true, you're not able to go back. You might not be able to change your, your behaviors in a day, right? But you won't be able to pretend that that thing isn't true, right? We've all had those uncomfortable um, truth moments.
Um, where it's like, I, I wish that person wasn't right, but they're right, right? And I know that they're right, and I can't shake that off. Um, and as I start to love the truth more, the result is I discover even more truth. Um, the more one perseveres in God's word, he says, the greater God's light becomes. Greater self-understanding develops in man's conscience, so he's able to cast off habits and behavior that are contrary to God's truth. The Holy Spirit sincerely increases with every word and action. By continuing to exist in the light and truth of God, the old self withers and dries up and crumbles away. Bit by bit, it loses its power, giving place to the spirit. Right? Is that it's... Imagine if you were, like, kidnapped as an infant by some, I don't know, barbarians, um, and made a slave, okay? You live with them your whole life acting as a slave, okay? You believe that you are a slave, and so you function as one. You were told you're a slave. You're, from, the, from when you were a child, you were told you're a slave. So you're going to function as one. In your heart, you accept that this is your lot in life, that probably your parents did something that caused all this. But then imagine if one day you overhear some of your masters talking when they think you're asleep, and you find out that you are the kidnapped son of a king. Suddenly your whole world is rocked, right? Like your whole life you were a slave, and then suddenly you find out that this is not your identity. You'll need to know if it's true. So then imagine, I like creative writing, if you found out that there's a diary from the captain of the ship you work on that kept a log of all of your history, or an elderly man in the town or something nearby um, who knows everything um, about you. You may start off rejoicing simply that you are not what you thought, but the more you hear about your identity and who your dad is and where he is, the more truth and knowledge that you acquire, right? This is what I mean, you'll want more and more truth, is right, like you have this rocking point of like, oh wow, it turns out I'm this, but that's going to lead you to want to know more and more and more about who you are. Um, the more likely is that you might be liberated from the bondage that you're in. Pursuit of truth usually means learning more and more and more truth, and that usually means liberation and change, right? What happens here is that the truth has a life of its own, and the truth itself starts to change the person. That is, the person didn't suddenly start to become the son of a king, right? It's not like they suddenly became that. He already was. The whole time he was the son of a king. That wasn't something new. But the knowledge of it starts to change him from inside and out. That's why Abuna then says, man should not worry about being saved from the old self, right? He's saying like, chill, don't worry about this. As long as he is truly honest to the word, capital W, Logos, which is alive and active. All that is required of man is to accept the word as a weapon to which he opens his heart and will. The active work of the man here is simply to open his heart, right? Is to get his self out of the way, to allow God to penetrate it. He gives the word power and authority over every thought and deed so that his action may completely control his heart, conscience, thought, and will. This will happen through the constant pricking of the conscience, right? So it's... Once this knowledge has implanted in you, you're just going to naturally find that you're, you're moving in this direction. It's inevitable, right? You could actively stop it from doing that, right? Or you could just say, where is this going? Where is this taking me? From a moral perspective, this is what happens when the conscience um, comes alive. If you have a friend who is sensitive and you are a sarcastic person, if the friend tells you a truth that she's bothered by your sarcasm, you will, hopefully, 
um, think about how your conduct affects people, right? You may tell her that this whole time you thought she found it hilarious, um, to which she may tell you, no, not at all, um, and your interpretation was wrong, <laughs> okay? I'm, I'm not enjoying your sarcasm at all. Um, so the knowledge makes you get new knowledge, right? Where it's like, oh, whoa, like, first of all, my sarcasm is not appreciated. Second, I've been misinterpreting, right, your reactions to me, right? I thought that I knew this and I didn't, um, which, which pricks our conscience and changes you. Hopefully this leads you to question your behavior more, right? Hopefully it makes you then ask, why am I sarcastic? Hopefully it makes you ask, who else have I offended, right? That I might not know that I've offended. What does my sarcasm mean? What other behaviors have I misinterpreted? How am I making people think? How am I making people feel, right? That this might lead me into a whole slew of other knowledge that I wasn't aware of, right? That might affect my behavior and make me change to say, oh, I didn't know that. I thought this was something everybody loved about me, but I might be completely wrong, right? And sarcasm is not always nice. So the Bible is this great light that shines on our actions, our deeds, and our thoughts. And if we let the truth of the Bible penetrate us, it will do work in us. Um, which is why he quotes, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. If I believe that what I'm receiving is actually true, then it has to change me. Right? I shouldn't have an option about it. If my mom says, I'm so hurt when you do this to me, unless I believe that she's like completely joking, then I have to change. Right? I can't just be like, oh, that's a nice truth. Right? <laughs> it turns out she's offended. Good. That's nice. Right? I have to change my behavior now that I'm aware of something that I didn't know. So if we are very true and sincere to the Logos, then the old man will not be able to continue its activities in you. It would become unacceptable unless I don't have love. So many of us don't take seriously the Bible and have an attitude of, yeah, 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 the Bible. Um, but if you use it, it's um, incredible. He says, so the weapons with which we fight are, are our holding on firmly to the word, our submission to its call and its will, and our encouragement of the word in our lives. It is also the light that we follow after until we finally leave the old man for the light of Christ and the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Then we will indeed be children of light and truth. So then the next question is, what are the signs then that the new man is emerging? Right? How do I know that the new man is coming out, that there is a change that's going on? Um, first, the Holy Spirit becomes stronger in me. He says, the death of the old man gives the Holy Spirit the opportunity to produce in us the witness of the power of God. This testifies in our conscience and the conscience of others that we are children of God in truth. Um, St. Seraphim of Sarov, an Eastern Orthodox saint um, who's very similar to Pope Carlos VI. If you read their stories, there's, there's a huge uh, similarity. But there's a book of his called, um, very, very short, I recommend you all read it, called Acquisition of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's absolutely phenomenal. It's one of the life changers if you actually read it with here and here working together. Um, but he talks about this concept a lot. Right? That the more work that I do in the name of Christ, right? not arbitrary works just as the sake of works, but in works in the name of Christ, the more empowered the Holy Spirit is within me. Right? And so I end up doing more and more acts of love and I'm more and more united with, with the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Anath is writing about right here. So number one, I'll find that the Holy Spirit is stronger within me. Um, and all of the stuff that you read about in the, in the Holy Bible 
is stuff that still happens today. Right? So when you read in the book of Acts, for example, that book of Acts is, should be called the book of the Holy Spirit um, because it, it emphasizes most the work of the Holy Spirit in directing. Um, when the Holy Spirit comes and tells them, no, don't go there, go here, that stuff happens, right? Sometimes in a, in a way that, you, like, through others, and sometimes in a very active way where the Holy Spirit will say, no, go do this, right? These things are, are real. They didn't stop after the first century. Second, the sensitivity to sin increases especially vainglory, because a person sees the truth about him or herself. Once the old man has died, the spirit increases in its sensitivity against any vainglory, which are not just words or deeds, but are considered by the spirit to be sacrilegious and a form of blasphemy. And we say this, why? Because we said earlier, because it was because I was putting myself in this place of God, that's why it was blasphemy and sacrilegious, right? Is that I was setting myself up to be um, God himself. And so he gives you a test. Um, like, I didn't have to ask these questions. He says, test yourself. Do you feel comfortable when praised or given glory? Do you get upset when neglected or when your pride has been hurt? If the answer is that you are comfortable when praised or that you are upset, then you have not yet died to the self. When the old body is quite dead, then worship has become truly godly, free of false appearances and partiality, displayed and assumed humility, which are all awful. Um, I remember asking, I was talking to my priest when, in Canada um, one time about vainglory, right? I'm like, well, what if someone tells you a great lesson, right? What if, like, the youth are particularly moved by, like, some story that I told or, or whatever? I'm like, how do you respond to praise, right? I'm like, because obviously, like, I'm going to feel a little bit happy. Um, and so he was like, do you know what I do when people tell me I did an amazing sermon? And I was, like, waiting for these, like, huge words, like, to come out. And I was like, what? And I say, thank you. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh. Um, like, it was a bit of a buzzkill. Um, but, then, <laughs> but then he added one part to it. And he said, but on the inside, I say to God, Lord, you know. Well, um, Lord, you know. You know who I am. Right? He doesn't do that outwardly because he's like, if you do that outwardly, if you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, no, yes, yes, yes. No, that was amazing. I've never heard that before. And I'm like, no, it's the words of God. I'm like, oh, really? Right? And then it's like, pat on the back. Right? And if you're like, yeah, it was not bad, eh? Right? Like, all of these are, are, are wrong. <laughs> right? So we have to be aware. And so he says, you know what? Close the door. Right? Close the door to this dialogue that's only going to inflate your ego. And it will inflate your ego. Right? And just say thank you. In fact, they might even think that you're egotistical for saying thank you. Um, he's like, which is better for your pride, right? That they think that of you than them, like, like, blowing you up. And then on the inside, you just look at God and say, you know who I really am, right? And if you genuinely believe that the words that you're giving are not yours, you have nothing to boast in. Because if, something, if someone gets happy by something I say... I have nothing to boast about if it was true. Because I didn't, I didn't invent the truth. Right? The truth isn't mine. The truth is always true. We stumble across truth. We discover truths. But truths are always true or they're not true. Right? Something is only true if it is true. Period. Right? Something doesn't become true. It always is. So I have nothing to boast. I have nothing to take credit for. And if I'm growing in the new man, then neither praise nor insults will affect me, right? In fact, insults might help just build me, 
right, to say, oh, maybe I am doing something wrong, right? But these are the things that should emerge. Um, this means the following, he says, God does not meet man except in man's spirit. This is like triple underline that, okay? Because this is one of the main reasons, this isn't what I was going to talk about here, but it's just an important point, why many people say, I don't feel God. Why they say, like, I, I, don't, I don't get that stuff that you're talking about. I have never had it. And it's because God is a spirit. And your spirit is what interacts with God. And if your spirit is not in tune with God, then you're right. You don't feel God. Right? You're only going to feel Him externally. You're not going to feel Him internally. So there's nothing shocking about that as the consequence. It's because the whole system was wrong. Right? Man only encounters Him through his spirit, and that's why your spiritual life matters, because spiritual life is a thing. Um, this encounter will be sound. All worship, just to the mind or emotions, will cease and vanish away. It's no longer a bodily thing. It's now entered into the spirit. Um, now a man's worship will no longer depend on what he has studied with the intellect, nor by his emotional state, but by his spiritual condition. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? These are those... Phases that many of you may have had throughout your life of visitations of grace, where like God gives like steroids to your spirit um, for like a specific period, so that you're like, oh, so this is what it's like when it's functional, right? Where like suddenly like you're eager for church, you're eager to pray, you're eager to read, like you can stand and pray for hours. The psalms that you dreaded, you're like, give me more, right? Like all of those things, and you suddenly come very alive. Right? It really is like spirit steroids. Okay? And so it's him giving you life, an injection of saying, this is real, this does exist, you can enjoy it, it's actually possible. Right? So then when it comes down, you're like, okay, how do I acquire health again? Right? How do I be healthy again? Because that was nice, I liked it. Right? I could even put up with hardship when I had that stuff. Right? So it becomes the thing that we pursue. Um, and this is what... We're, we're striving towards. The truth of this pure worship is tested and discerned by many. Again, test yourself. Does your worship and prayer, these are all tests to see, is the new man emerging or is the old man still active? Does your worship and prayer become more fervent when you are praised? Right? Because if you are the new man, that's not going to affect your intensity of prayer. Right? So if suddenly when they praise me, I'm like, oh, I'm going to pray more. Right? And I'm like, they really like that one. Um, then I'm, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Is your jealousy aroused before others and your superiors? If yes, then you have not yet died. Number three, sensitivity to God increases because yourself is more aligned with Him now than with the body. A person will find himself, as he writes, in unceasing prayer from the depths of your, of your heart, you'll have a continuous desire to kneel down because you feel the presence of God, not because you want anything in particular. And you'll experience an inward, unshakable peace. Note that what he's saying here is that it's now a love of truth. Okay? Not a love of reward anymore, but a love of truth for its, for its very essence. Your closeness to God is for who He is and not for what he gives you. For a thing, it should result in you reading the Bible more. Because you now want weaknesses and light to be revealed to you. It's no longer accidental or incidental. It becomes something that you desire. It's like someone who's discovered health, right? Where it's like, oh, I didn't know that. What else can you tell me, right? And then suddenly 
right? As you learn more, it's like that, like we talked about earlier, like that guy at the gym, after he starts to see whatever progress that he's got, right? It's like, okay, that's so like legit. Someone who's learning nutrition, right? Where it's like, okay, after they find out like caloric intake, right? Then they start finding out like, oh, percentages of fat, carbs, and protein, right? And then it's like, oh, there's different kinds of carbs, right? And they start, it's funny, you know, right? They get more artistic with it as they, just, as they figure out that they can do stuff. And suddenly they're interested, right? Where they weren't before and it's no longer repulsive. Where it's like, I don't know how to read those labels, right? Where now it's like, oh, no, no, you need to read those labels, right? There's a change has happened, right? There's, there's now a, a desire for this. Um, you find that you want instruction now rather than being evasive, right? You're no longer trying to hide the self away um, from God or from those who will expose you. Instead, you're actually seeking them, right? You want the person to show and shed light on the things that are wrong. Um, uh, I'll skip this part. Um, test, he gives another test. Does the word of the Bible make you increasingly realize your sin does it reveal the crookedness of your life every time you read it? If not, perhaps you're not reading it properly. And there's lots of um, good resources on how to read the Bible. One of the best is actually by Awunemetta. It's the first uh, chapter in the book Communion of Love. Um, fifth, your will dies. You now trust the truth rather than yourself. As you increase in experience with him, you know that he knows what he's doing. So here he says, when the old man has died, the will is readily put into God's hand. A man will also be concerned for his soul and become very careful not to be diverted from the accompanying grace of God. You'll experience this richly at the beginning as he is separated from the power of the old flesh. This grace will remain with him all his life, kindling him to pray and practice holy silence. Right? A really good example of this to me is, is Abraham. Um, because... I have no doubt that the first call of Abraham was probably immensely difficult, right? Of saying, get up, leave your house, leave your family, leave all cultural customs, every single possible thing, okay? And just peace out, follow me. Where are we going? You'll find out, right? Like, like there is nothing solid, there is nothing concrete, right? And I was talking with this with somebody yesterday, because Abraham is one of my favorite people in, in all history, right? Is that if you even look at the verses carefully, right? There is long spaces between God talking. Many of us are like, oh, I wish God spoke to me. And I'm like, really? Right? Like, it was like 13 years after, like, one instruction, then there's just silence, right? He's just chilling. Like, I don't know when I'm leaving this country. <laughs> I don't know why I'm in this country, but I'm in this country, right? Then it's suddenly like, now leave. Go here. And when he goes, it's not even like it's peaceful, Right? Here's like Pharaoh wanting his wife, right? There's other places people are like filling up his well, their only source of, of water, right? He's being thrown, right? Wherever it is, with long periods of silence, and he's just saying, okay, no problem, right? This is an immense measure of faith, but the only reason he could do it must be because his will died when he saw the perfect will of God. That it was like, whatever it is that you want, it's working, right? Whatever it is you're doing, I can see it in some form. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know where it's going. And God never got mad at him for asking, which he did many times. We always talk to him as a faith, but he always makes me laugh when, uh, like, he's just said yes to the covenant, and like, yay, Abraham. And like, three verses later, he's like, no, but seriously, are you actually going to give me stuff? Um, and like, and God, it wasn't like, we just talked, right? Like, he, <laughs> he was like, yes, how do you mean? Um, 
But when you learn to abandon your will and you see him working in your life, you become less afraid, right, of the next step. So it becomes experience under your belt that, yeah, I was worried the first time, but everything ended up working out just fine, right? So it wasn't maybe what I expected, but, I, but it was good, right? So we allow um, our will to be less and his to be more. Next is your feelings die. Um, in the sense that you don't need external comfort anymore. When the old man dies, feelings out toward the outer world die too. That is why one's many and various tasks no longer separate one from the presence of God. He has the constant desire to worship and adore on his knees as the inner spirit enters its relationship with God and enjoyment of his love. Right? So he's no longer like, you know, like, I like the God thing, but I want to do insert activity here. Not that those activities are wrong, right? But just that they don't regulate that person anymore. It's no longer, when I have time, I'll do the God thing, right? It's like, no, my earnest desire is this, right? And all my thoughts point towards this. And so I have less feelings about everything else, um, whatever it is that our addictions might be. Um, seven is we become less emotionally driven. And a lot of people really hate me for this one. Um, because I'm always beating people down with emo, not being non-emotional. Um, I, I no longer fluctuate on whim anymore. Okay? I don't let my emotions rule me. Right? Again, contrast to present spirituality. Right? Like the thing today is like, what makes you feel good? Right? And so we, we focus our, our worship around feelings. Right? We're constantly trying to induce emotions, which is the opposite of all that we just talked about, right? Which is that it's, it's not a, about those things. It's not about your, your feelings, right? I'm not saying that we don't have them, but they're not what the goal is. Um, and so if I'm trying to artificially induce an emotion, this is akin to what we talked about earlier today with the whole trying to like bear spiritual weight on the body, right? Where it's like, no, you need spiritual weight. Right? So the emotional part, which exists in all of us, myself included, okay, is fine, but it's not what carries you. So it's, it's not what you want to focus on. Right? It's like how most guys are obsessed with their biceps. From a like, weight-bearing perspective, they suck. Right? They don't do much. They're mostly aesthetic. Okay? <laughs> so like, you can have them. <laughs> in fact, you do. Um, but right? it's, it's a matter of like, what, is this, what is this for? Where am I putting my... My focus. So it's not horrific and, and wrong that we have emotions, but what am I trying to do? Because a lot of people are like, oh, but when I go here, you know, I just, I feel this, right? And again, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but that's not everything. I know one person told me once, um, and I can say this even if, because um, we're tight friends, um, she was like, it was in uh, Culver City. She's like, you know, whenever I listen to this song, I cry. Um, and I started laughing, and I was just like, is that the objective, <laughs> right? Like, is that, is that, like, how I measure my spirituality is how often I cry, right, to this song? Um, because it's, it's not. She's one of my favorite people. Um, With the death of the old man, the thoughts, willpower, and emotions are not possessed by the self anymore, so these are not controlled by whims and fancies going up and down according to circumstances. They are now controlled by the Holy Spirit for the sake of man's salvation, and for that of others as well. That's why um, one of the, the greatest virtues are, especially in the monastic setting that we look for, 
is constancy, right? Is looking for that image, that figure, that nothing moves, which to me is Anthony the Great, right? Where, like, whether in death or in starvation or in joy or in, in anything, that person is just stable, right? And if you've observed it in a person before, it's, it's something enviable, right? Where it's just like, wow. And it's not um, a person who lacks empathy. It's not somebody who, who doesn't understand, right, that people have emotions or feelings. It's just that they don't allow themselves to be rocked by those things, to make that emotional decision, right? And so they become the firmest anchors, right, in the hardest of times, right? Where it's like, I know I can go to that person, because that person isn't going to sink. If I'm sinking, I can hold on to it. He's not going to sink or she's not going to sink. It's, a, it's an, an immense, immensely deep um, spiritual level. I think I've only seen it maybe in, in two people on the planet um, ever, both of whom are monks. Um, so in summary, what the, old, what the person should look like if the old man is dead, I'll just read to you his summary. With the death of the old man... Man becomes clear to others, open to everyone, belongs to everyone. He becomes a friend to all and is loved by all to whom he speaks. This is because Jesus is alive in him in all patience, love, and modesty. Man becomes a source of joy and benefit to others, not for their entertainment or for honeyed words or for cheap forms of comfort, but for their discipline and edification. That is all for the sake of helping bring about the death of the old man and others. Uh, and that's the end of lecture four. I actually met a man like this, um, a saint in our church who's still alive, so I won't say his name. And people had told me about him for years. He's a monk from St. Anthony's Monastery. And um, they would tell me all the miracles he does and how he's so and like all of these uh, like spiritual gifts and I wasn't that interested because um, I was raised to be very skeptical of a lot of these things um, and I, I'm not a, at one to run after like that kind of, of person so this monk, his disciple was always like, here's his number it's not his, like the guy who takes care of him is like, call him, I'm like, nah um, and so I didn't, for like a year and a half, two years I didn't, I didn't bother um, and I was pretty proud of it, I'm not going to lie, I was like, I didn't do that. Um, and then when I, I met him, I was extremely nervous because I was like, oh, if he's reading thoughts, um, <laughs> this could be a problem for me. Um, so I was sitting in a room with like 30 monks or something, and he's looking at them one by one, he was taking confession, he just came out to rest for a bit, and I'm like, okay, what do I do? I'm like, Jesus prayer, I'll do Jesus prayer. So I started doing Jesus prayer, I'm like, oh wait, maybe he doesn't know English. So I started doing Jesus prayer in Arabic, um, <laughs> and then I was like, I'll do Coptic, I'm super religious. Um, and then, I, you know, when someone's staring at you, I looked up and he was just smiling. Um, and then... With that, that very short, maybe one hour, an hour and a half that night, like in a group setting, I didn't sit with him one-on-one -on -one that time. Um, I, for the first time in my life, I'd heard the expression, but I'd never experienced the expression of saying, today I met Christ, right? Because it wasn't for anything he said, right? He was overflowing with virtue and love and peace and joy and happiness, right? That anything you felt, you felt lifted from you, we're just like, I need to be near this person. It made me think of how, how did Christ call the apostles to him, 
right? How were they willing to leave some, and for some random guy, for like some random claim, right? There had to have been something so compelling um, about this person, or why would they do it, right? And in seeing it in this person, I was like, that's Christ, right? That's who it is, and that is who the new man should be. And glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Any questions or comments? I have a few that are already written, but if there are some like live or about this lecture first, then I don't mind. Peter. That's what I'm saying. Emotions aren't wrong. I'm not saying anyone who has an emotion is a horrible human being and not a good Christian or, um, or anything like that. All I'm saying is that I can't let my emotions regulate me, right? And if I let my emotions determine my whole spiritual life, then it's going to be misinformed. Because emotions are basically based off whatever knowledge you have at that time, right? Imagine if you're bawling your eyes out because you found out someone very close to you um, like, got in a car accident. And then an hour later, you find out it wasn't your friend that was in the car accident. Right? One fact changed all your emotions in a second. Right? So you might be upset or emotional about something in your life and have no idea that is false. Right? So I, I'm definitely not saying don't be emotional. I'm, I'm actually, admittedly, I know most people might not believe it about me, I am a very emotional person. Um, so like I'm not saying it to hate on, on emotional people I'm just saying put everything in its place right is emotions serve a particular purpose they're not wrong right but they can't be the moderator of my spiritual life I can't say I can't pray because I'm not feeling it right if I were to say like if, if a married couple like stop sacrificing for each other because they're not in the mood the relationship will break down Right? If someone says, like, you know, like, I'm just tired and I don't want to listen to you anymore, give me a month. Right? It's like, well, that hurts. Right? Can't you, like, can't you come, like, and sacrifice a little bit? <laughs> right? And, and, and act like you can handle my emotions for a little bit? It's, it's in going against how I feel that I show my love. Right? So if I pray and I don't feel like praying, it's actually a more loving prayer. Because I wasn't in the mood, right? If I, like, I, I'm learning this the hard way. Most of us are horrible with our, our immediate families, right? We'll be super nice to everyone outside, right? But it's like, if my dad is going to be content by me just listening to him vent, why not just listen to him vent, right? I don't need to be in the mood, right? I don't have to be like, okay, when I'm ready for what it is that you can tell me, I will. Right? If I just say, I'm not in the mood, drives me nuts, I know what he wants to get at, he wants me to do this and this and this, and I turn on all of that, I'll never, I'll never show him love. Right? So love and truth have to be done in spite of how I feel. Right? Sometimes my emotion will work with me, sometimes it'll work against me, that's fine, as long as it is never at the expense of love and truth, feel whatever you want, go for it. Right? But just make sure that my, my decision in making is based on, on what's right more than what's comfortable, what makes me feel good. Does that sufficiently answer? Okay. Um, 
If someone was born with disease, do you think that it is from God? No, I don't. Not necessarily. Um, because genetics are a result of so many things, right? Like diseases come from mutations, mutations come from radiation, exposure, all sorts of things. Like I think that these are, are, are man-made, right? Disease came after the fall. So um, is it possible that God could do that? Maybe, right? But do I think that that's the case? Usually, no, I don't. I think it would be extraordinarily rare for God to have done something like, like I can't even think of it. I'm just saying that could he, if he wanted to, he has the power to do all things, yes. Is that the, is that the norm? No, it's not. I don't, I don't think that. Um, I think it's unfortunate. I think the person is a victim of sin, just like the rest of us. Um, it's just it might be in a harder way sometimes, depending on what that disease is. Sometimes it is hard for us um, not to take things personally and or be defensive. What are some practical suggestions to help us with this? Ask yourself if you want the truth, which I know doesn't sound practical, but it, it is. Right? It is that l- truth is, is life-changing because something, something, sometimes things are personal. Right? Like, so even pretending that they're not personal might not be a good idea. Right? So maybe the person is wrong. Like we all make mistakes, myself very much included, with how we approach people. Um, but I should ask myself, rather than try and find out what's wrong with anyone else, is to self-accuse. Right, and say, is there truth? Is there truth to what's being, say, being said? And if there is, why am I being defensive? It's true. I do have this flaw. Right? And so if it is, great, now I know the truth. Now I can be liberated from it. Right? Now I found out that I'm this. No problem. Right? It's not the end of the world. Um, now I can take a step back and try and, and remedy it. So one is, I would say, ask yourself if the thing is true. If the answer is yes... Great, you have a starting point. If the answer is you don't think so, it might still be true, right? If you don't think so, then perception is reality. What am I doing that's making people think um, that I am this, that, or the other thing? And what can I do to alleviate that thing, right? Without expectation of the other, right? Only directing it towards myself. What is the thing that I am doing that is causing me um, to give people this reaction? And is it something that I can remedy um, or work on or not. Even higher is to say the Lord has sent this person to me, okay, to teach me that I am imperfect and that because he loves me, he wants me to be even more beautiful, right, by being more in line with the truth, to be more in the image and likeness of him. And so out of his mercy, he's telling me, right? Imagine if, if a mom or dad knows that their kid is doing something really dangerous to him or herself, right? They would be upset if their parents knew the whole time and didn't say it, right? Like, once it gets them in trouble, right, they're like, how come you didn't tell me, right? When you tell them before they get in trouble, then they're like, I can't believe you said that to me, right? Which is where this is coming from, right? But the loving parent will say, I know this is hurtful right now because your yourself is very strong, okay? But you might want to correct it. So the highest level is to say, God himself is outreaching me personally, to tell me what I can improve on. I asked him for truth, and he gave it to me. Um, this one we kind of discussed on the side, so I'm going to come back to it. We're, we've been saying the phrase, God allowed this or that to happen. Does this mean that God at times does not allow things to occur? 
and how does that fit into our concept of free will? That's a great um, question. Um, basically, God's will for everybody is salvation, which I don't know why a lot of people find really disappointing. Um, because most of us want someone, like we want God to say something so specific to us in all things, right? Where he's like, cross the road, right? And so you'll hear things that don't make sense, right? Where, which, like, I'm a doubter, right? So this is, I'm always coming from the doubting perspective, right? So if you're telling me, like, okay, it was God's will, right, that I got into <laughs> pharmacy school, for example, right? But then, like, I applied for a job and I didn't get it, then I go, oh, then it wasn't God's will, it wasn't God's will, right? But then the next job that you get, oh, it was God's will, it was God's will. Like, so how are you choosing, right? Like, what, which one is it? So is it his will, is it not his will? I don't get it, right? So God's will for everyone is salvation and that should not be disappointing. It's a really nice thing. Um, and so that's what he wants for all of us. So like we said earlier, if the mission statement of the, of the organization is salvation, that's what he wants. And everything in it, everything in that building, okay, is about that mission. It's about everyone's salvation. Within this big building, okay, there might be specific tasks assigned out, okay? So there might be someone who's like, no, I actually specifically want you to be secretary on the ninth floor, okay? Because I know that you work amazingly well with this person, this person, this person. We're going to be way more efficient. Everyone's going to get along there, and that's going to be great. There's another person where he's like, okay, you have this gift. I want you in this job. There's another person, this person will get really upset because they want to be someone that they're not, okay? Where he's like, go wherever you want which is a nice thing, right, of saying, you have a gift that everywhere you go is going to bring people to me, right? That's a wonderful thing. Like, I don't know why we should be disappointed by that, right? So somebody, God might actively will to go somewhere. There's somebody who God would be like, no, I specifically want to marry this person. There are others who are like, marry whoever you want, right? And it's not because he's disinterested in that person. It's because for some reason, for salvation of everybody involved, these two people marrying might be specifically necessary in this case, but not for this person. There's another person where God's like, no, I, I actually want you to move to Montana. Okay, so go, right? And another person is like, go wherever you want, right? Because it's about salvation. Everything is about salvation. So within this context, there's an active will, right? Where God is saying, I actually want this to happen. You come here, I'm putting you here, Okay. And then there's also the passive in the sense where this question is coming of um, is that he lets us make our own decisions, right? And so God might be passive in the sense that he is not constantly maneuvering us, right? So I'm saying so when he actively does something, which is not necessarily all the time, okay, is always going to be for salvation, but he doesn't constantly do this with everyone at all times and all things that you do because we're not puppets, right? Is that if I don't have freedom, then I can't love. And so when I say something is God's will or not God's will, I mean in the sense that God didn't actively intervene to change something, right? Is that there are people, right? I always sometimes, I, that doesn't make sense. I sometimes wonder, I always sometimes, um, I sometimes wonder Right, like that miracle, and I and I didn't say it at the beginning of the sermon last week because I, I don't have an answer for it. Um, so I didn't want to. I'm going to do it now. Right, when I'm like only one guy got <laughs> cured in the pool. Right, I'm like that sucks. 
right? Like, like I, I imagine that many people were thinking, why wasn't I cured, right? Why was it just the first guy um, in the pool, right? And these are things that we don't understand. St. Anthony asked God that, saying, I don't get it. Why is there this person um, who's old and horrible? And why is it this young kid? And he said, Anthony, very kindly and politely, none of your business, okay? He's like, this is my job, not yours, okay? I, I will deal with them. So... I, if a spiritual person will be able to say, I will take everything as though it's God's will, in the sense that even in the passive part, God could have actively changed something and didn't. Okay, and so if he didn't, then I can benefit from this. Right, it's just different from saying God did this. Right, that's the difference. Because often what we are upset about is 100% purely human will. And yes, definitely God allows things to happen that are against His will. All the time. All the time. God never wills for you to sin and we're all doing it all the time. Right? God didn't will for the Israelites to go into captivity in Babylon, but they did. Right? There's a lot of things that God didn't will that happened. But He allows it to happen because He wants us to exercise freedom. Because freedom is the only thing in existence that allows me to love. Period. If I don't have freedom, I cannot love. Then I'm a slave, right? And so it is the, the greatest gift that God could possibly have given. It really is an astounding one when you think of it. I don't think any of us um, would have that much love of saying, I'm going to allow you the freedom to even hurt me, and I made you, right? I'm allowing you to kill me, and I made you, right? It's, it's, a, it's a whole other level of love. So... Um, uh, yes, it does mean that sometimes God might not allow something to occur. Um, it fits into the concept of free will in the sense that it is always exceptional, always for salvation. Any follow-up questions on, on that before I move on? Go for it. Um, so you said if he didn't give us salvation, we would be slaves to Or I'm sorry, if he didn't give us uh, freedom, we would, we would be slaves. Yes. Okay, so... I would. I don't understand why he gave me freedom to choose. Where he would have. I'm very sure he. He's the Almighty. He's capable of doing anything and everything. I don't understand why he didn't make it where everyone gets to heaven, even if we're all meant to be slaves. I don't want to answer that while I'm being recorded. We don't know what happens, okay? So I'm not saying, I'm not originist, right? I'm not saying that everyone's going to be saved. Um, but that's something that fathers have postulated on, right? So I'm not going to get into that whole thing. What I will say is this. If I, in the image and likeness of God, have a concept of justice, and I, in the image and likeness of God, have a concept of love, I'm only the relative of that attribute, Okay, whereas he's the absolute of those attributes. So if I'm concerned about that, and it being right or wrong, then I am sure that he is infinitely and absolutely more concerned about it than myself. Right? So I will trust in his justice and in his mercy, and that he knows how to balance those things in a way that I couldn't understand. Right? There has been many postulations from many different fathers of the church on all the different possibilities, so it would be useless to even for me to take a side right now and say this. Right? I know which things mentally I like, 
But in terms of the truth, truth, none of us will know until those things are, are revealed. Fair question, though. Um, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Does, doesn't this mean bad things happen to us because we sin? Yes, it does. Um, sorry. Um, moving right along. Um, it does. When I do wrong, <laughs> when I do wrong, it, it harms me, right? Of course, right? If we see sin as disease, um, if we see sin as, sin as injury, okay? And I, when I say disease here, I don't mean it as in physical disease. I mean it as a concept, right? To say that when I do um, when I injure my body, I cause disease. When I injure my spirit, I cause disease. Injury, spiritual injury is sin, okay, is, is what it is. And sin turns into disease and it brings forth death, which is what, what we see. So yes, I can definitely damage myself through sin, right? I can be liberated from my disease, but not always from the consequences, right? So for example, I might fall into sin and, and I don't know, father a child, okay? I can repent and confess and be... Um, absolved of this, but it doesn't mean that I no longer have a child, right? I still have a child. There's been a product of my sin, right? So I can make a crime and I can be sentenced to, to life in prison. I can be forgiven, okay, but I'm still serving out some, some sentence. I'm not saying that God does the sentencing or anything like that, but I mean that, yes, sin does cause disease. And actually, that particular story is very telling, Right, because it's one of few stories in the in the New Testament where um, where Christ explicitly makes that statement to the person. Um, why do you think the Father sometimes exchanged between the soul and spirit? Um, it was a terminology thing, I think, mostly because um, there was no need to talk much about the soul in the sense like of it just being life, um, and so it just became a, a thing. Right? We still say sunrise and sunset and the sun ain't rising or setting. Um, but it, it's just a thing right? that, we, that we, still, we still say. But it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It, wasn't, it didn't have some kind of special meaning. Uh, sometimes at work, especially in a leadership position, when you have to be more firm and, act like, not, and not act like yourself, do you think that you have to be the quiet, nice one at work? I think you should be yourself and don't sin. That's my motto for everyone. Right? Whatever your personality is, be it, just don't do wrong. If you're outgoing, be outgoing. Right? If you are somebody who's talkative, okay, but don't annoy people, don't lie, don't gossip. Right? If you're an introvert, be an introvert. Don't be cold, don't be cruel, okay? don't be aloof. Um, so be who you are right? and don't be an offense to others, don't do something that's wrong, rather than having a, a list of set of rules. God gave you a gift. Right to be who you are, and the whole community needs everybody. Right, we need the jokesters, and we need the silent people. We need the monks, we need the nuns, and we need the engineers. Unfortunately, and we need, um, and we need, we need the mailman. So we need everybody in all of their gifts, and all of their forms, and all of their places. Absolutely, they're the best. Um, we spoke throughout the retreat so far about pride, ego, self, etc. How can we attain the virtue of humility, the opposite of pride? And that's what this one was just mostly about. Humility is self-knowledge. It's to confront that self. It's to realize that I am that person, right? Without hatred, without self-abuse, without anything like that. It just say that that's me, right? We often talk about the vices of others. It's better when I find out that that vice is my own. Right, is to say, no, I'm not any better than anybody else. 
I'm not. When, like, when I read, uh, like, this book again, like, when we were reading for the thing, my immediate reaction, like, literally, I went and I got, and I contacted my spiritual father, I'm like, I need to meet. Um, I'm like, I'm horrible, <laughs> right? Is that these things bring us to the knowledge of self. We, we easily all go astray. We all lose um, our bearings sometimes. We forget what we were doing. We get distracted by something. We overemphasize something. So as to come back to the self and say, this is me. Right? This is who the, the self is. And until that self is in the perfect image and likeness of God, then it will, it will fall short. And that's why humility will become a constant virtue in you when you know it. Um, one of the, the easiest ways to start learning humility is obedience. Um, because obedience is denying yourself. Obedience is saying, I'm allowing someone to control me that doesn't have the authority necessarily to, but that I am allowing to. That's why St. Paul says to spouses, wives, submit to one another. Husbands and wives, submit to one another, right? Is to say, let the other person dominate you, right? Let the person bow to their will. Don't, don't seek out your own will. Children, listen to your parents. Parents, don't provoke your children. All of these are calls for denial from everybody, right? These are all telling somebody, deny yourself for somebody else. That is what love is. Right? If I take everything that everyone does as an order, like sometimes that's an exercise that I give, um, but don't just apply that without your spiritual father, obviously. I'm saying, treat everything anybody tells you this whole period X as an order to you. Right? If somebody in the office says, I'm thirsty, take it as though it's an order for you to go get him water. Go get him water. Right? If somebody says, I'm cold, if you're, if you're burning hot, turn up the heat. Right? Be uncomfortable for the sake of something. What you're doing is denying the will. You see a beggar on the street, treat it as an order for you to give. Don't judge whether they're going to do drugs or alcohol or all those other things. Right? If you're really so consternated about that issue, go get him a Vaughn's card. Right? But like putting your will, subjecting your will to someone else will do that. More than anything is to serve others. That will teach you humility. Right? Is to put everybody else before yourself. That's why Christ said, if you want to be like me, right, then do as I do, right? And then what did he do? He sat down, he pulled out a cloth, and he washed their feet. That's what he did. Even as God, he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, came down and served humanity. Even when he came, he didn't come like, hey, I'm here, I'm God, right? Instead, he was walking up and down the streets, right? He was serving everybody that he came in contact with, with love and without any kind of partiality, right? So if you want to learn humility, serve others more than yourself, be obedient to others, and put others before yourself, and you will not be far from humility. Where does giving old self up when also there becomes a conflict with your spouse and or children? Actually, what we were just talking about. Can you deny your will for them? If so, then do it. Never at the expense of truth and be really honest if this is a truth issue and not an ego issue, okay? Um, of saying, what can I do for this person, right? Um, I used this example at, at St. Basil's last week from uh, Way of the Ascetics, right? Where um, the good wife gave um, the husband, he's taking uh, a rule of obedience for himself to learn humility, and she told them, take an umbrella with you to work today. It looks like it's going to rain. It did not look like it was going to rain. Um, there was nothing gray about the day. Nothing. And at the end of the day, it didn't rain. <laughs> okay? But it's not about the rain. 
right? It's about saying, okay, right? Of, of allowing yourself to say, okay, right? Imagine how different your homes and your households would be, not just with spouses, with your siblings, with your family, with your friends, with anybody, if you were all willing to bow your will to the others, right? That's what I'm saying. Never at the expense of truth. And I'm like, oh, but he really wants to do shisha. I don't want to disappoint him, right? But like when the person's like, I want Italian. Like, I hate Italian. I love Mexican, right? But you're like, okay, well, we'll have Italian, right? Like, and that person might know that you, that you hate Italian, right? Hopefully that person then is like, oh, wow, I didn't think they would want that. <laughs> okay, next time, like, do you want to do Mexican, right? Like, and suddenly we have a spirit of giving, not of taking, right? It becomes a, a, a change in, in spirit. Um, so when there's a conflict with your spouse and her children, find out, is my conflict because of a, a real principle or is it because of something I just want? If it's something you just want, deny yourself, right? To the best of your ability, learn how to deny yourself. This is what, what love is. Um, question B of that, is there a new self that your family has to be accustomed to or it will be a good example for them? It will be a good example for them, right? There's... I, I was telling this during the break. I, I'll put him on blast. Abuna Kurlus Ibrahim, um, who is amazing. Um, when I first joined this diocese, I knew, I've known him forever. I've known him since like 2000 or 2001. Um, I come from a church where we were very sarcastic. Um, and we had all sorts of drama and justifying. This is a sin. Um, so whatever it is, I had acquired a habit, <laughs> okay, of never being able to just say something nice, right? Like, I would need to add the wrong in it, right? I couldn't be like, I like that person, period. It'd be like, I like that person, if only they just wouldn't insert negative here, right? <laughs> or what a great priest, but if it wasn't just for that one thing, right? Like, they, it would always, like, follow. So, like, if one would bring up some priest, because he's about to tell me, like, a nice story, and I'm like, oh, isn't that the guy who, like, did that weird thing, right? <laughs> and then, like, and he'd be like, yeah, but anyway... He, and like get excited about the guy and talk about how good he was and, and, and something like that. So like slowly I became sensitized to the fact that I'm a jerk. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, I have no need to say this. Like, what, why am I saying it? Right? Like what possible value does it have for me to simply like blast out and blare out what's wrong with the guy? Right? I hope no one does that about me because <laughs> there's so many things that they could talk about, right? So I'm like, okay. So then slowly I stop doing it. Now I'm very sensitive to it, right? Now I get irritated if somebody is coming to just tell me how bad the world is, right? Like I can bear it like when somebody is venting, they need to vent for whatever reason, but I'm not okay with just saying bad things about people, right? It's something that I'm like, no, if there isn't a purpose to why you're going to tell me, this thing is negative because of a struggle you have or because of whatever, then I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anything bad about anybody. I want to just like them, right? Their struggles are, are their own, right? So here's an example of somebody who just by doing what's right changed me, right, for the better, right? So yes, it, hopefully it will change your whole atmosphere in the house of, of, of feeling like it's, it's like when um, like somebody... I don't know, out of nowhere, when I, when I moved out, I couldn't, like, I couldn't stand my dad's lectures, right? So when I moved out for college, I'd come home during the summers, and I just found that I missed my dad, right? And I, that shocked me. Um, and then my dad was giving this long lecture in the family room, and I was just staring at him. And I was like, when he was done, I was like, thanks, dad, 
And, like, he was shocked. He was like, what's wrong? Like, he thought I was going to have an angry face or, like, ah, like, like in some, like, whatever. But, like, suddenly it, it, it wasn't like that, right? And then his response was, like, do you want to go out? Like, it was like, what do we do now? Like, this is a weird, like, reaction. So when we do things in the right way, yes, you become a light to others. That's why Christ said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good Father's works and glorify, see your works and glorify your Father in heaven, which means that they too will have changed. Um, what are the signs of a decaying spiritual life? What are they for a thriving one? A decaying one is one that becomes more apathetic. One of the most obvious signs of a decaying spiritual life is a person who doesn't pray. Um, is probably the most obvious one. Whenever someone's going through a spiritual rut, it's usually my first question, how much are you praying? Right? Because a person who's in contact with God, usually something's more alive. The spark is a little bit um, bigger, myself included. Right? I, I know when I'm in a spiritual rut, and I even get worried about those I serve. Like, I'll talk to my spiritual father, and like, give me limitations while I'm in this period. We all have them, so don't freak out if you're not having the best um, prayer life right now. But that's one of the biggest telltale signs. Usually it'll mean you choosing yourself, you're more apathetic, you're more irritated at the idea of things um, that you know are good, right? You don't want to meet up with people who you know are good influences on you. Um, you'll, you'll actively choose things that are, are wrong. That's like a, a general picture. What are they for a thriving one? The exact opposite of those. Somebody who's at the feet of everybody serving is a, is a very big sign. It, it makes them come alive. It makes them pray more. Um, you're, you won't be selfish, you'll be selfless, because that's what love is. Love is prayer, right? Is, is being in the presence of God. So a thriving one, you'll see light emanating from the person's faith. They're excited um, about what they do. Um, they're, they're eager more to give than they are to take. If somebody insults them, they bear it happily. Um, they're, they're Christ. Mark 13.32, but at that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Isn't the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit one? If the Father knows, how does the Son not know? This is a really hard one to um, explain. Um, this is in the humility of the Son in the Incarnation, in terms of emptying Himself, right, as, as in, the, in the form of, of humanity. In terms of divinity, yes, he's very aware of when um, things will be. There's, there's a perfect unity um, of the Trinity. Um, if whoever it is can um, shoot me an email, I'll send you a nice patristic answer for it because I, 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 I'm not ashamed to say when I don't know. I do get this one. It's just very, very difficult to articulate. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a short one because it, it requires an understanding of who is Christ. Um, and what does it mean? So I'm not being evasive. Um, I just I want you to get the full proper answer and not lip service in, in 30 seconds. Um, how can I ensure that every every day I'm doing something for the glory of God? Any good tricks? Um, go out of your way every day to do something selfless. If you want to um, do something for the glory of God, it's just say, in your name, Lord, today I will do something. Right? Today... I'm going to go message the person who nobody asks about. Okay, today I'm going to have lunch with the person that no one's there for. Today I'm going to actively, not passively, I'm going to actively go out and find someone homeless and give them something. 
right? Today, I'm going to actively call my mom because I haven't in forever, and I know she's, she's bothered by that, right? Today, I'm going to actively think of something active to do in the name of Christ, in keeping with the gospel, um, and you will find the Holy Spirit growing within you. Um, is cuddling a sin um, with... <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Um, without... Without true sexual act, please let me know. Honestly, I actually don't know why this is hilarious. Um, I think it's a fair question. Is cuddling a sin without the true sexual act? Please let me know. So, I actually like this question, to be honest, because I honestly think that this generation is way too touchy. Um, um, like, I, I really mean it. Because... Um, Everyone talks about it as though it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you laugh. Um, but like, <laughs> thanks, you know. Um, men and women are different. This, like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> e- let, let me finish. Men and women are, are equal but different, and we need to actually appreciate that in the terms of how touch affects people. Like, let's be real, okay? There's been studies done that if a girl touches a guy, like a waitress touches a guy, when she's laying down the receipt and just touching, like, thanks a lot, dear, like, her tips are going to be higher, okay? So you can laugh, but it's the truth, okay? So we do need to be aware of how we affect each other. You need to be aware of your limitations. So I'm not going to sit and define what physical act is legal and halal, okay? And what is... um, and what is not. But I would say is that you need to be really honest about temptation and that if you're not, you're only fooling yourself, right? Because guys are more stimulated than, guy, than girls by touch. Both are, okay? Just guys are, are more, right? Whereas girls might have more of a propensity towards um, intellectual stimulation and, 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 and affection. I'm not putting that as a rule. Both enjoy both, okay? Um, it's just saying that in terms of, of, of ratio... And I don't even care whether that's true or false in terms of who's more or who's less. It doesn't matter. These are things that are in us, right? And so if you, if you start putting a magical line in your relationship, all you're going to do is break it, okay? Like, that's the honest truth, right? If you say, oh, no, no, I'm only going to do this. You can be sarcastic about it. I'm like, oh, I'll just touch her like this and like all sorts of juvenile like arguments. Go for it, okay? But the truth is... You are designed to be sexual. Whether homosexual or heterosexual, everyone is designed to be sexual. And so you are going to want to do more because you are designed to do more. Because it isn't wrong to do more at the right time. So let's be real about these things because most people that do the act often didn't intend to. Right? That wasn't like they got together, most people who are struggling. Some people, yes, they did, but they're not worried about cuddling. Okay? But those who are trying to not do like, something wrong didn't intend to do the thing that was wrong. So be really real about your limitations. This is part of, of knowing yourself. Right? Is that if I want purity, I need to make the decisions that match my desire for purity. Okay? So I won't give a line on it. I would just say, be real. I don't think this is a ridiculous question. No, I think it's a, it's a, a very, very good one. Um, because... Yeah. 
curious about your thoughts on the church's position just on homosexuality, just because it has become a very sort of open rhetorical conversation in society today. And then in terms of friendships and marriages and attendance, do you have a view on sort of either drawing a line or maintaining the difference between intention and action? I don't know if I understand the last part at all. Can you clarify? The first part's enough. Okay, you can do part B. Um, uh, homosexuality and the church. We hear a lot of random things being said. Homosexuality has multiple aspects to it. Nature, nurture, and warfare. All three. Okay? And there can be extremes of each one in any individual's life. There's somebody who might be largely biology. Okay? It might be someone who's largely nurture. It might be someone who's somewhere in the, in the middle. Okay, so to throw random blanket statements would be a disservice to the truth, okay? So what we can say with somewhat certainty is that it's not 100% causal um, in the sense that when we want to know genetically if something's causal, we look at identical twins. If they both are, then there's a, gen a clear genetic thing. If they're not both, it doesn't mean no biology, it just means not causal, okay? There seems to be a whole slew of evidence that yes, there's a biology to it, um, and in which case we have to stop yelling and screaming at homosexuals like they're choosing to do this um, and like they're the most despicable people in the world. They're not, okay? Um, and the struggle is real and difficult. I know many people who struggle with this, many in our Coptic community, so it's not like this is a foreign um, issue uh, to us. This is an issue that affects more people than you know. Um, and that's why I was laughing even when you, when you hugged, right, with the whole like touchy-feeling thing is because I was at a church where I know that one kid was gay. And so when one guy was grabbing his butt, thinking that it's just guy, like, um, fun, that kid was struggling <laughs> with that action, right? So, like, we can all laugh, but it's, it's actually very difficult, right? And I can only imagine what it's like for that kid, right, to be in the middle of it with all that's going on. So we need to be aware of those things. So obviously we don't, we don't bless homosexual marriage. We do believe that there was a design to sexuality, Right? And we do believe that whether nature or nurture, whatever it is, is irrelevant in the sense that if someone strays from the design, then it is wrong in terms of intention, okay, but not wrong in terms of person. Right? So we'll never say that is a bad person. Right? It is simply a person who struggles with such and such in the same way that all of us struggle um, with different things. That's why, to me, I think the church should spend more emphasis on how do we deal with this um, more than on yelling. Um, because... People need support, right? They need to know that, um, that they should be able to come out to their community, right? And be able to struggle from within the community without being afraid, right? Where it's like, okay, this is my struggle. I understand what the church's stance is on it. Because most of these people are being encouraged for celibacy, right? And celibacy is hard, right? I know it because I'm a celibate, right? So I, I know what it's like to be celibate. But I have a community, <laughs> Right? I have the St. Paul Brotherhood to go back to. Whereas, what is this person going to do? This person needs a community. Which is why if this person doesn't have a family, right, a nuclear family in terms of getting married and having kids, then I would hope that the church rises to the occasion to become this person's family and kids. Right? And if you don't work towards creating that community for the people that struggle, then you're not really loving anybody. Right? Then you're only loving people on your terms. Right? And so we need to be aware of these struggles and need to be aware of the reality of them um, and to be able um, to embrace people where they're at 
embracing the person doesn't mean you're agreeing with every decision that the person may or may not make, but every single one of them, us makes decisions that are not always right. Any follow-up questions or comments on, on that? I use all of the above, but I'm very careful with how I use it because of the negative connotations of some of the words, right? When I use the word um, disease, obviously today that has a very negative connotation. I've been using the word aberration more. I don't know if it's much nicer. Um, but the intent is to say that there's a, like a gene that's supposed to function in a certain way, and some aberration has happened that causes a different function. That's, that's all it is. Disease simply means... This means like wrong, like something's gone wrong, right? And so it's simply some functioning isn't functioning as it should and nothing else. So if I use those words, I tend to try and explain it that way to make it clear that I'm not saying these diseased people over here with this negative um, tone. So acting on homosexuality is a sin. Being a homosexual is not, right? Having the inclination is not, right? It's what, what I choose to do. Right? I wouldn't say that somebody who's had thoughts of lust, I wouldn't say you're a fornicator, you sinful person. I say you'd have a thought of fornication, and that's wrong. Right? That there's, there has to be a clear line between the two. So you're saying that if we identify weddings and events, we shouldn't go? I don't know where I stand on that, I'm not going to lie. I haven't, I haven't wrestled with that enough. I really don't know the answer to that. Um, it's, it's a difficult one. Like, it would depend to me on so many factors personally that I don't I don't know I, I can't answer that um, not evasiveness I just I haven't dealt with it yet in my mind but it's it's a fair question I just I just suck um, <laughs> any any other follow up questions oh, sorry, well on, on that topic uh, I don't mean to get personal but say for example you have a friend uh, Like, are you talking about the wedding or are you talking about visiting people and stuff? Uh, I mean, I, this has been a discussion, I think, with other people within our circle of friends. And we don't, you know, people have, are torn between two sides. And what are your opinions both? Again, I, I haven't come to my full conclusion, right? When I think aloud on some things, to me, the part that I have to kind of battle with is my perspective on other Christian denominations, if it's something being done in the church. Right, because something being done in a church, if I consider this other person a Christian, right, if I'm participating on an act that I believe to be wrong, that's where my struggle is. That's where I feel like, no, I, I would be inclined to not. And it wouldn't be done out of contempt or hatred or sarcasm or any like negative thing as much as it is like saying, No, I, I simply I don't believe in, in participating in the blessing of it, right? That's why the ritual itself needs to be addressed of what is the objective of the ritual. Right? For example, in, in a wedding, is it a priest is making two people one? Or is the community gathering to say, Oxios, we agree to this? Because if, if my attendance is, is, a, is an assent to this, then no, I, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't be uncomfortable saying that to the person and also showing my love sincerely. Right? Like that there, there are other ways to, to show it. Right? It would be like 
like anybody insisting on anything, forget that specific particular battle, or saying, no, you have to attend because you're my friend and you have to agree, where it's like, but I, but I don't agree, right? And so it doesn't mean that I, I like you less, it means that I disagree, right? And we have to be able to have the freedom to disagree with one another without shoving it down either one's throats, right? So on a basic level, that's where I stand, but it would depend more on what does the sacrament mean in that person's eyes? What does the sacrament mean in that community if it's a Christian one? What exactly is being proclaimed? What is the meaning of my participation? Those are all the things that I would need to have answered to be able to give a more effective answer on whether or not to go, right? That, that's where I, I think I, the struggle lies within it. What about going to a non-Christian heterosexual world? And again, it would depend on what, am I partici- what does my participation mean, right? Am I literally just attending an event that is occurring? And how strongly do I feel about it being right or wrong? That's what I'm saying. I'm not even limiting, limiting this in my mind to simply a gay marriage, right? I'm looking at it beyond. Let's say it's a Muslim marriage. Right. And that's what I'm saying. What does my participation mean, right? So if I'm being asked to come as a spectator, right, which is what it is in a, in a mosque, I don't have a problem with that. I'm a spectator, right? So I'm, like, I'm not being asked to agree or disagree. I'm just asked to come and watch. Right? Sure. I have no problem coming and watching. Right? That's what I'm saying. What does the ceremony itself mean? Right? Just like if my kid, which obviously I don't have, um, were asked in Canada to go to some like um, native reserve, right, to observe a, a ritualistic dance, no problem. If my kid is being asked to participate in what is actually really religious ceremony, then no, I'm not okay anymore. Right? Even if I don't believe that, that God is real, I'm not okay with my kid participating. Right, so it just—it's a matter of what—what what is my participation? What does my attendance mean? Is it—is it a participation? And if yes, what is that participation? Because it might still be okay, right? Um, and if it—if it's a spectator, it's a much easier decision, um, in my view, anyway, uh, to to make. Okay. Um, did you want to ask your one B? <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, last one in writing is, how does someone who has always tried to live a holy, virtuous life compare to someone who's lived all their life in sin and just came back and repented? Do you think God sees both the same way? The thought that preach that you just need to confess and your sins will be forgiven, I feel, allows people to think they can continue the same habits. It's a measure of love at the end of the day, right? Is what do you do when you come at the last hour? That's, that's what God is asking, right? So God himself gives us the parable of, of the workers, right? Of people who came in the morning and people who came at the end of the day. People who came in the morning were angry that the people who came at the end of the day took the same wages. And God asked them, what's your problem? <laughs> I agreed with you on your wage. I didn't, I didn't cheat you. Right? I told you your wage, so don't be upset with that. And he did give the wage to the person who labored in the last hour. So as long as that person in the last hour that comes labors honestly, right, then the reward is the same, there's nothing to worry about. This latter part about thinking that they continue the same habits um, means that the person isn't coming to labor. It means that the person is coming just for pay, and that won't work. Right? If the person is coming to labor they will already know that they need to put aside or at least struggle against um, 
their old bad habits that have taken hold on them? These were really good questions. Dorothy's of Gaza, Discourses and Sayings. Um, I can send it to Jenny from the church. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so not Jenny from the block. Um, 90s reference. Um, but oh, that's 2000s. It's absolutely phenomenal. I actually would recommend it. Next year, God willing, will be another speaker. You guys won't have to deal with me, but um, I would highly recommend it for next year's uh, book to the committee, but obviously up to you guys. Dorotheus of Gaza Discourses and Sayings, $30 on Amazon with prime delivery. Oh, then no one knows that. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Um, it was, uh, we're at it. 